I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Hannah Moffat about her middle grade novel, Small. Hannah is a creative director at a language and behavioural science consultancy, where she says she spends her days writing very sensible things for businesses. At night, she escapes into the beautifully bonkers world of middle grade fiction, where she writes significantly less sensible things for children. In this episode, we talk about the fun process of creating a school for giants, being conscious of pace and holding children's attention, and her great tips for finding an agent. But first, here's Hannah with an excerpt from Small. There was a knock on the door. Bang. It wasn't a normal knock. Bang. Sawdust came down from the ceiling. Bang. The whole house shook. That must be the new neighbours coming to wish you a happy birthday, said Mum in the pretend cheery voice she uses when she doesn't want me to worry. It always makes me worry more. But no one lives anywhere near here, I blurted as all our plates fell off the kitchen shelf and smashed on the floor. Unlike our boring old houses on boring streets next to boring offices, this house was on the edge of a swamp. It smelled like damp raincoats and looked ready to fall down. I loved it. Let's surprise them, said Mum, acting like I hadn't said anything at all. She shoved the top hat on my head, lifted me back onto the stilts and pulled the extra long dungarees up over them. Mum, what are you doing? I said. If our new neighbours really were outside, this wasn't what I wanted to wear when I met them. Mum ignored me again and pushed me into the hall. I wobbled all the way. Bang! Bang! Crash! A big hairy fist burst through the middle of the front door and pulled it off its hinges. Ah! I cried. The hairy fist was attached to a hairy arm that was attached to a body that was even bigger than mine. And I was on stilts! This body was so tall its face could have peered into our upstairs windows. But right now, the face and the arms and the fists and the body were bent over and squeezing through the space where our front door had been. There was only one sensible thing to do. Help! It's a giant! He's going to eat us! 
I yelled at the top of my voice. I stumbled backwards so fast I almost fell off my stilts. Hi Hannah, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your kidlit novel, Small. Hi Chloe, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here as well. So could you start by telling us what Small is all about? I can. Uh, So Small follows a 10-year-old boy called Harvey Small and he's had quite a run of bad luck at the point where the book starts. Uh, Quite a lot of that bad luck has been at school and it's meant that there are no local schools left uh, that will let Harvey study there. And his mum has been searching everywhere for a school that will take him in spite of his unlucky record and she has found one school and it is Madame Bogbrush's School for Gifted Giants. Uh, There's just one problem here. Harvey is a normal boy. He is not a giant. And if the giants find out that he is a normal boy, they are very likely to stomp him into a sandwich, as they are not a fan of humans or smalls, as they call them. Uh, So his mum has bought him this elaborate disguise, a pair of stilts, a very tall top hat, some extra long trousers... And the book follows his attempt to initially just survive at this school, but ultimately to try and make friends as well, uh, fit in and see if he can get through the school year without his bad luck coming back to haunt him. And also without his secret being discovered. Absolutely, yeah. He's pretty sure bad things will happen if his disguise is uncovered. So I read that you came up with the idea when you were doing a City Lit course and you were given a creative writing prompt about an unusual school. And that's where you kind of had the early seed of an idea for this novel. So how did it grow from this kind of writing prompt to a fully grown novel? Very slowly would be (laughs) the first answer. Um, I, I did this little writing prompt exercise then didn't really think about it again for quite some time. And then I was back at the next term at City Lit, working on something else that I was struggling with and that I hadn't shared with the group yet. And we'd gone for a drink after class and I was saying how it was my turn to read next week. And I wasn't really sure about what I was working on, but that I did have this other idea that I hadn't started about a boy trying to make his way in giant school. And all of my writing friends were like, oh, that's really funny. Drop the other idea, do this. <laughs> so, um, so, OK, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I should try that. <laughs> um, the, the initial version of the story was completely different to the one I've ended up with. So whilst I was in City Lit, I was doing a sort of riff on Jack and the Beanstalk. And uh, Jack's great granddaughter was in it. And it was all all very much linked to that story. Uh, But then when I signed with my agent and was telling her about it, she said, oh, no, it can actually be a bit harder to sell books that are a direct link to other stories that are out there. So you might be better doing it completely standalone and separate. Uh, So then the plot all changed. So, yeah, it took quite a long time to evolve it from the first first prompt idea uh, to Mm. the final story. Yeah, it's so original. And it's funny when you talk, you speak to authors and they say, oh, originally it started out as this and then it evolved. And then sometimes you can't see how it was once linked to something completely different. And with your novel, it feels so original that I'm thinking to myself now, how how would Jack the Beanstalk come into it? But I guess it's the, the trolls and the giants. And I, I guess that's the link there. 
So I got the impression from reading this novel that you had such a great time writing it. It was so fun. There were so many disgusting things in it that I think kids would <laughs> adore and your kind of invention of some brilliant names. So one of your characters is called Walloping Toenail and things like that. So what was it like to create this world of weird and wonderful characters? Oh, so much fun. Yeah, loads of people say, oh, it sounded like you had fun. But yes, yes, I did. <laughs> um, and actually, especially with characters, I tend to start with characters and tricky scenarios before the world. So I have a notebook that is just full of stupid names for giants. Uh, and I think, again, because of that original Jack and the Beanstalk link, and I'd read that the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk in some of the early versions was called Blunderbore. And so I'd really like that blundering sound. And that's why most of my giants are blundering, lumbering, moaning, galumphing, groaning. It's all that sort of funny, big, echoey sound noises. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was really fun. And then I'm also quite into my food. Not admittedly the food that they eat, but I'd started off thinking, I'd be amazing, giant chocolate cakes, giant spaghetti bolognese and food that I like. And then thought, hang on a minute but these are giants living in a swamp. So their food is probably going to be the exact opposite of anything I would like to eat. So sort of started there. Yeah, poor Harvey at one point is really looking forward to his school dinner and his hopefully giant spaghetti bolognese. And then when he gets to the canteen, he realises that it's a lot more disgusting than the, the food he was hoping for. Yeah, that's one of my favourite bits, poor <laughs> Harvey. I know. And he's having a hard enough time at school anyway. And I mean, there's so much silliness and, and fun in this novel, there's so much humour. So was that difficult to write? And I, I wondered as well whether you were conscious of thinking that parents and adults maybe reading this book would have to enjoy, enjoy, enjoy it as well. And did you put things in there that you thought, OK, well, this is for the mums and dads or the parents reading as well? Or were you not really conscious that you were just kind of writing what you found funny and you found entertaining? I think it's more the latter. I didn't want it to be like a pantomime mm. where you've got very much two levels of, of humour going on. Mums yeah, and there's, dads no, and there's no like innuendo, is there? So No. Uh, but And I'm quite a childish grown-up myself, so I wrote things that made me laugh <laughs> and hoped it would be the same for everybody else. Uh, but it, it, sort of, it wasn't always as easy as... I think when you read a funny book, you think, oh, well, it obviously just comes naturally and I think the first initial scenarios the very early chapters when a giant suddenly burst into Harvey's house and interviews him for giant school that wasn't quite one take but it wasn't far off it that I already had the idea in my head I thought this will be really funny and just wrote it down but as for the rest of the book I still remember like a dagger to the heart when I sent my first version of this to my agent that she read it and her feedback was well it's not quite as funny as the last book you gave me. <laughs> like, no, so upsetting. Um, but I think I've realised that outside of a silly setup scenario, I actually layer, layer on quite a lot of the humour later that it takes me quite a while to get the plot right and I almost need to be comfortable with the overall structure of the book and then I can just start putting weird things in uh, and just up the darkness so there was bits of humour at the beginning but actually quite a few pieces came in uh, later on. Yeah I do hear that writing funny books and writing humour in books is a lot harder and I can imagine that 
it's I guess it's like it's it's when you work on like a line level but when you bring in the humor and it sounds to me that that's what you're saying that you kind of came up with funny scenarios but then to add the majority of the humor came in I guess the editing process yeah absolutely and I mean some people I think have noticed this so one of the reviews described small as having uh, like really good set pieces and I was like damn it they spotted it but <laughs> it, was, it was like oh this dining hall scene already exists and some plot happens but it's not funny enough I know let's have one giant sitting on a bench and Harvey flinging off the other end of it so it was very much things like that that I was sort of adding in um, so you've sort of roughly got the plot of the scene now let's put the set piece in in the edit so I guess this is a good point to ask you about your your writing process because it, do you start with kind of big set piece scenes and then work from there I know um I read that you said you're more of a, a pantser than a plotter so is it is it kind of your thinking of just things that you'd like to include and then working the plot around that how how does your process work uh, so you are totally right. I'm very much a pantser at heart. And I've always liked the NaNoWriMo, you know, the National Novel Writing Month approach, where you just do sort of a thousand or so words a day, no editing, just get to the end. Um, and I do like that for coming up with wacky stuff that I tend to find if I'm giving myself a stupid deadline and writing without editing that my brain will naturally suddenly go, a fortune teller and a seller. <laughs> and it'll just be me going, I need to write something today. What can I put in? Uh, so I'll completely pantser it for the first draft. Then I will try and write a synopsis, a very rough and ready one that's sort of the main beats of the story. And that's what I'll go to my agent for approval of, do you think this can work? Uh, and then I get to slightly more serious, okay, now let's turn this into a, a book that makes structural sense and and everything else do you have to be more conscious of I guess making it a really tightly plotted riveting story because you know you've got to hold children's attention you know uh, we know as well that some children struggle to enjoy reading or struggle to engage so is are you conscious of basically making something great on every page um Oh, I mean, I'd love to think it was great on every page. I'm not sure if it is. I'm certainly conscious of things like length and pace. So I try to keep each chapter really as short as I can get it. And also once I'm at sort of editing level, I am a big fan of the read aloud tool on Word. Uh, so there you get a fairly robotic voice. I try and go for the most boring voice option available. Sometimes in more modern versions of Word, you get more everyday voices I go for the most boring one and I listen to each chapter on that and if I find myself still going with the story and still being interested in what's happening then I think okay the pace is working and as soon as I switch off I go right what where did I switch off what's gone on there can I do I need can I cut this bit can I make the sentences shorter can I add some dialogue uh, so I'll use that as my guide and I think it has really worked in my favour because the other bit of feedback that I wasn't consciously thinking this should be a read aloud but obviously kids books can be and the sort of the age of mine means that mums and dads could like easily be reading this as a bedtime 
story at the younger age groups and loads of people have said it's really fun to read aloud and I think it's because I just spent so long with that word tool just listening for the rhythm on every page almost yeah and also I, I imagine the dialogue the dialogue's great to read out loud out loud because your um kind of giant characters have a slightly different way of speaking as well and so I can imagine parents putting on voices and I think it'd be great fun to read aloud yeah, I really hope they do. And I tried to get a load of cliffhangers in as well. The, the more cliffhangers you can get at the end of chapters to make the kid go, one more chapter. Yeah. You make those Always in my later mind. and later doing that. Yeah, you get a lot of parents <laughs> complaining to you about that now. <laughs> Not yet. I'm hoping. I'm waiting for the complaint letters to come in because then it means they're reading it. And that yeah, make me that's happy. great. So obviously writing children's fiction is a complete joy because you get unlimited freedom but crazy imagination and uh, all these unusual characters but there is a kind of deeper theme to this novel as well and I read that you said the novel is partly about imposter syndrome so were you conscious of needing to have a kind of a bigger meaning a deeper theme for children to relate to when they're when they read when they're reading this or was that something that was almost secondary to the, the fun you were having when you were writing this story? Probably secondary. Uh, again, our tutor at City Lit always used to sort of hammer into us, like, just tell a good story. Uh, don't, because sometimes if you go in too heavy handedly with a theme, it can sound a bit sort of preachy, like, be nice to people, children. Or, uh, and, and I didn't want that to be coming through. Uh, it was probably a slight offhand comment. The imposter syndrome is more a reflection on my personality I think than anything else I sort of the psychologically revealing thing about myself in this book and the first one which sadly <laughs> died at acquisition were both about characters pretending to be something they're not so I'd written a book about a kid pretending to be the earthling prime minister that was my first book out and then second book kid pretending to be a giant and I I just think that that is a reflection of me always uh, having that imposter syndrome like pretending to be a children's author pretending to be this that or the other <laughs> in my career uh that so I hope that kids probably don't come away with that too much as the theme um although there are ideas in there about like believing in yourself and that some of the stories that you tell yourself whether as a child or an adult of sort of not being good enough I hope that actually if any kids can relate to Harvey's story, maybe if their parents are split up like his are, that they learn that actually sometimes bad things happen in life and they're not your fault. It's nothing to do with you and you can still go on and make friends and have a good life even when these things are happening around you. Mm. Um, but I didn't go into it thinking this is what I must write, but it sort <laughs> yeah. of ended up weaving its way in. Actually, you mentioned the the fact about his divorced parents, and I really liked that you didn't kind of do the whole "oh, they're back together" at the end of the book thing because um, I my parents divorced when I was a kid, and I think there's a tendency in some fiction, whether it's TV or film or books, where it's like for the happy ever after, we have to get the parents back together. And obviously, for a lot of kids, that isn't reality. And I always remember watching Mrs. Doubtfire as a kid, and the parents don't reunite. And I always think it was almost like reassuring as a kid to to see that for that character as well. And so I was pleased that Harvey's parents, and I remember, I think the mum says at the end, "Oh God, no! You know, we're not back together." Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so we'll tolerate each other long enough yeah. to watch your school show. Yeah, exactly. uh, and then we're we're going our separate ways. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, I, yeah, and I wanted that as well. I want probably the one thing that I wanted to be really realistic mm. within the story. Obviously, in a fantasy world like this, you don't necessarily expect lots of home truths and realism in it. But yeah, I wanted some things to be true to life, and it just it felt one step too far mm. on the fantastical level for yeah, Harvey to have magically got, brought them back together. Even though we've got giants and things, it is a step too far. <laughs> yeah. One thing I really loved about your novel was these kind of snippets of school reports and timetables and their schools being inspected by their version of Ofsted at the time. And so you get little snippets of the school report. And I think that's such a fun addition. I love when books add kind of documents and things like that in 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 between chapters and yours does that too. So was that something you were really keen to include from the start? Uh, again a mix so some things like the giant's timetable that would have probably been the second thing I came up with after all the names <laughs> so okay we've got a load of silly named characters now what are they going to study at school so a lot of the school things the school dinner menu things came quite early uh, the Ofsted inspection that came really late on so that was after my agent had seen the first draft of it and she was saying uh, she felt that the story needed another problem and as if Harvey's problem wasn't sort of big <laughs> enough there boy on boy on still surviving giant school she was saying well it'd be good if there was some other problem that the whole school could be focused mm. on from quite early in the story and so I went away and was thinking about that and my biggest school problem that I remember from my school days was the way that teachers just went completely off the rails when Ofsted was coming in and all the lessons would change and you'd be a completely different version of yourselves yeah. uh, and so I really liked the idea of that happening uh, so I when I added that in it just seemed to feel right to include snippets of the school inspection so that we could just see how disastrously uh, the giants have been misinterpreting all the things that the beastly school board actually wanted. And you've got an alternative perspective as well on how Harvey was actually doing and was he making a convincing giant mm -hmm. or did the inspector notice that maybe something was amiss there? Yeah, definitely. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I want to talk as well about your illustrations by Rory Walker, because I think they're a great addition too, and they're kind of swampy and slimy and absolutely perfect for the book. So did you get to have any kind of input into the illustrations? Did you get to see them uh, or give any kind of feedback to how you were imagining the characters? Um, a little, but I, to be honest, not a lot was needed. So I didn't see any other illustrators. I'm not sure if uh, my publisher looked at any other illustrators before she suggested Rory. Uh, but I mean, I only had to take one look at what he'd, he'd done was like, yes, this is exactly it. Um, I'm not super visual myself, so I didn't have a really clear idea before I saw his work of what I wanted. The only thing in my head was that I didn't want it to be too perfect. But you get some illustrations that are just all very neat and rounded and sort of precise. And I guess the only thing I thought was what well, the story is quite anarchic, so mm. it would be good to get some of that energy and his illustrations just do that perfectly. Um, so really, I mean, he didn't need he didn't need any kind of visual direction from me. So the only level I was feeding back on was really nitpicky. Well, I think you'll find uh, <laughs> that uh, actually Harvey would have been wearing his top hat at this point. So it was sort of that level yeah, of, yeah. of detail feedback. But the overall just feel and style of it was completely spot on mm. from the beginning it kind of reminded me a little bit of like quentin blake's illustrations so your novel does have a little bit of a roll dial feel to it i think like you say almost that anarchic feel and i think the illustrations are absolutely perfect with the novel really and, and i can see why like kids would really like love i think we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about kind of events you've done and things and and sort of interacting with kids over over this book and um the kind of how children interpret their own monsters and drawing their own creatures i think this will, this book will be a great inspiration for them in that, in that respect yeah yeah absolutely it's it's been so much fun and i think kids really do get into the visual side of it as well and wanting to yeah, use rory's illustrations maybe as a springboard to then go off and, and absolutely go and create their own mm. so the main thing i've been doing now when i've been doing bookshop events is is just a create your own swamp creature w obviously what's its name what does it eat where does it live in the swamp what's it afraid of what does it love doing and the things that kids come up with i mean they're just brilliant they could they could have written small themselves really. <laughs> they didn't need me but uh, i'm glad i got in there first yeah well i loved i think you put it on your i don't know whether it was on your instagram but it's definitely on Twitter you did like a swamp monster name generator which was really cool like you and I thought that was such a great idea and I think if I'd been the right age for small at school like I would have been creating my own like disgusting dinner menu I think it's that I I said to you I used to be a primary school teacher and I could just see how perfect this book would be for kids to like use their own imagination and like you say come up with their own swamp creatures come up with a a timetable or a new lesson or something like that I think it's absolutely ripe for creativity and imagination that's perfect for that 
Yeah, I've had a lot of fun with that name generator. Now, whenever I do an event, I make sure all the kids get their giant name before they do anything else. It's like your only way you're going to fit in in the swamp <laughs> is if you've got a giant name. So if any any other creature stops you, you can sound convincing. Um, and it's a really nice way of just getting the kids bought in right from the beginning as well. You say that they're called lumbering donut or whatever it might be, and they're just instantly yeah. in the world. I mean, I did mine and it was something bunion and I can't remember what it was. And I was just like, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Sorry. <That's fine. laughs> so I read that actually your original inspiration for Harvey was your nephew. So I want to know whether he read an earlier draft or read a version of small and maybe gave you his his thoughts or has he read it now and what does he think uh, so he actually didn't read an earlier draft I'm very fussy on who gets to read <laughs> the early draft so my mum is the only family member who gets the early drafts pre them going to agent or publisher and a selected few people from my city lit course uh, but he did see uh, two early versions of the cover uh, when there was a potentially a choice of two going on. I did ask him which one he preferred. And I was pleased because he preferred the one that I preferred as well and the one that is ultimately the cover. But it was very good to get a sense check from a kid of the right age. Uh, and yeah, I think he does enjoy it now. I mean, I thoroughly embarrassed him by doing an assembly at his school just before the summer holidays. And... Uh, saying that the character was named after him all eyes then <laughs> immediately turning <laughs> to him so uh, i like to think he was a celebrity in his school for the day as well and uh, he's been trying to get his classmates to buy it oh that's good you've got a little um a, a new sales team there just just in harvey <laughs> yeah. although i mean he did ask me if he was going to become a millionaire now so i had to break the news to him that debut children's authors it's it's rare to become a millionaire. I said, I'll do my best for him. Uh, but I don't know if he's going to quite get the level of fame that he's hoping well, for. Well, I mean, don't crush his dreams, Hannah. I mean, there's still a chance for him to, you know, live out that, that fantasy when he's older. Yeah, one day. So we briefly touched on the beginnings of your writing career going to City Lit. But I was wondering if you could tell us about your kind of full journey of becoming a writer and where your love of writing began and did you always know it was children's fiction that you wanted to write? Uh, probably not. I mean, I've always, I've loved writing. I'm sure that everybody says this, don't they? It's sort of as soon as I was old enough to pick up a pen. Uh, I've still uh, got this little file of facts that I had when I was about seven or eight when I decided I was going to be a poet. And every Saturday morning I would sit in bed and I would write these little poems. They're all dreadful. But I was quite convinced that that's how I was going to make my millions. So a bit like Harvey, <laughs> already set yeah. on where am I going to make make my money? Um, and then I'm, my day job is also a writer. So I've been professionally writing more or less since I left uni. So I've been a copywriter. And for quite a few years I was just contentedly doing that and do, writing websites and customer letters and video scripts and just all sorts of bits and pieces. Um, and then a few, quite a few years back, probably nearly 10 years, um, I heard about NaNoWriMo, uh, which I mentioned before. I thought, oh yeah, National Novel Writing Month, that sounds fun. I bet I've got a novel in me, why don't I try? And the first NaNoWriMo I did was a children's book, partly because I had uh, nephews at the right age. So Harvey is the younger of two. So his older brother was sort of the right age for these uh, books at the time. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to write a book for Harrison, my older nephew. 
Um, and I did also a few years later do an adult one as well. So in theory, I have a grown up book in the wings. But because I wrote the children's book first, because I had nephews, and then also I'd stumbled across this uh, City Lit writing course, which is a writing for children course, I sort of just ended up getting more and more immersed in the world. And it is so fun writing for children and also it gives me a great excuse as a grown-up to read loads of recent children's fiction as well and just everybody I've met on social media all the children's authors I've just thought you know what actually this is a community Mm. that I love being in I get to have loads of fun and write really silly things if I'm writing for children so I think the grown-up novel I have is probably going to sit in the drawer for quite a bit longer (laughs) So I guess we've briefly touched on it already, but what is it about writing for children that you love so much? So the daftness, I think my sense of humour just has always been very silly. Uh, And then early on when I was sort of dipping my toe into children's fiction and doing these courses, I read, and I know it's it's not even that current now, but Andy Stanton, uh, the Mr Gum books, which were just absolutely hilarious for for my very childish daft brain I was like yeah if you write for kids I think their their imaginations are just fantastic so they're just receptive to weird and wonderful ideas and they ask questions but different types of questions sort of the big they'll completely just buy into a world of giants as long as the story makes sense Uh, so I love that and then yeah we did touch on it as well that I hadn't realized until quite recently since the book came out just how much I'd love doing the events as well and just talking to kids because again in my day job as a writer I've actually run quite a lot of business writing workshops so I'm quite used to talking about writing with grown-ups And that is fine and nice and pays the bills. But it is such a different energy Mm. doing it with children. Children, well, they don't do things they don't want to do, do they? So (laughs) if you're doing an event at a bookshop, if the kid's not enjoying it, they'll ask their parents to take them home (laughs) again. So you know that the ones who stay are just fully invested. And it's just absolutely delightful I I did a workshop last week and I honestly think that had I not had to meet a friend for lunch uh, these kids would have probably sat with me all afternoon intricately coloring in their swamp monster comics and adding extra plot twists it's yeah it's just so Mm. rewarding it's so I can imagine I I just think it sounds amazing like I'm kind of jealous that I'm not a children's writer now like it just sounds so good and like you said doing the events and getting that instant feedback and and kids are hard to impress so the fact they wanted to stay there all day and were you know begging their parents to stay is is a is a great thing yeah it's a definite definite win for me I really like yeah and of course with the silly books as well I think you may be increasing your chance of getting more reluctant readers to read. So for the sort of slightly worthier reason beyond it's just good fun, it is actually really nice to think that you might be creating something that actually turns kids who weren't massive readers into slightly more enthusiastic readers as well. Absolutely, definitely. So how did you go from doing NaNoWriMo and doing the Satellit course to finding yourself an agent? How did that come about? So it took about a year. 
And I'd had some very wise advice from my city lit tutor when I'd finished uh, my book, which was, well, don't blanket, just send it out to all the agents in one go. Maybe just dip your toe in and send it to a few uh, because you can pretty much tell from the feedback or lack of it if you're in the right on the right lines. So I submitted to about six agents, I think, in round one and all stock rejections, nothing, no words of encouragement. So that was a fairly good signal that hmm, maybe this isn't quite working. Um, I did some more edits. I'd entered it into uh, a Winchester funny fiction competition where you just have to send the first chapter in and I got a second place a prize in that. It's like, oh, good. That's something I could put in a covering letter. I'll have another yeah. go. Uh, so I sent out to another five or six agents. And this was probably three or four months on from that first round. And I think, again, it was pretty much stock rejections. And I was like, oh, no, I was really convinced that this <laughs> this time it was going to work. So I decided that maybe there were more things wrong with the book than I had thought. So I thought, OK, where can I get some external editing help? And so I found an online course with Curtis Brown and they do a six week edit and pitch your novel course. And it was brilliant. It was so good. And as well as doing is sort of how to write a good cover letter, things like covering letters I was already fairly good at because of my day job and marketing writing. So I sort of thought, well, that's not so much an issue. But they also did a really good section of the course was on how to give your book a structural overhaul and just how to make sure that actually every scene in every chapter is in the right place, is moving the story along, is doing what it needs to do. And I went through this structural overhaul process and it was fairly apparent a few chapters in that hmm, maybe this book that I definitely thought was finished and perfect really was nowhere near as finished and perfect as I thought it was. Uh, so I did a full-on rewrite off the back of this course, submitted again to another six, and also did a second thing that might be a good tip for anyone else looking for agents, was that I actively looked for list builders. So I was using things like the bookseller website to tell me if any agencies had hired new agents, I was looking at agents who were doing courses. So I think Bloomsbury sometimes does these that like you can have lunch with an agent or events where you can pitch to agents. So I was looking at the agents' names who were appearing on those sorts of websites. So I thought, OK, they're probably the ones who don't have a million clients already. So I think there was sort of a combination of newly polished and re-edited novel plus a much more deliberate choice of agents of don't just go to the big names and the biggest agencies but go to the people who seem to be trying to build their list and from that six uh, I still got one quite crushing rejection that suggested I do a writing course uh, but ignoring that one I also got two full <laughs> manuscript requests so I think oh it's doing something right and one of those two was uh, from Lydia Silver at Darley Anderson who is now actually uh, my agent uh, and actually, even with her it wasn't an immediate full manuscript request yes great I'll take it it was a full manuscript request and then a revise and resubmit so she said I, I do really like this but I have some things that I think you ought to work on would you be up for working exclusively with me so not submitting to other agents for sort of six to eight weeks 
to do these edits and I said yes absolutely 100% give me the edits because I was really in editing mode at this point um and yeah then then she said yes on on that second edited round and we've been working together ever since that's great and I I love your advice there about looking for agents who are new and building lists like I haven't heard that advice before but I think that's that's great advice for anyone who is going into the daunting world of querying and trying to find someone that's the right fit for them so do you have any other advice that you think anyone listening who is interested in writing children's fiction would any advice that you think would be really helpful for them um i mean if you haven't done a writing course and you're not in a writing group yet probably get yourself in one and ideally in one that is just for children's writing because i think adults critiquing children's writing if they're not in that world may not actually give you the best feedback because things have just moved on since Harry Potter is over what 20 years old now which is just (laughs) terrifying to me and I kind of thought going into my city of course oh yeah I'm up with the modern kid lit Harry Potter no read things that are being published now read Louis Stoll and Loki and read the the hits that are coming out now Scandar and the Unicorn Thieves like know what's about now so ideally get yourself in a writing group if you are in one already hopefully you're already reading lots of current children's fiction but if you aren't do yeah don't like you say don't just rely on the books that you loved as a child because the world has moved on (laughs) yeah I mean I grew up on the famous five and secret seven and it was all just midnight feasts and jolly hockey sticks and you don't really want that in your books these days absolutely not no so finally, can you tell us what you're working on next? And I'm wondering whether I can say maybe you're writing a sequel? Yeah, I, I really hope there will be a sequel, not least because I am working on one, but I don't, I don't officially have a sequel deal. But um, yeah, I'm keeping my fingers, fingers crossed, crossed because I just think there is more, more to happen. And the Absolutely. sinking swamp is a big place. So I would like so, so I'm doing some edits at the moment to hopefully get the go ahead on on a sequel. But uh, yeah, no, no official news there. Uh, and I've also got another series that I've just started, uh, which, again, doesn't have a deal or anything yet, but that I think will be quite fun. Another sort of young, young fiction daft having another go at going back into space because I was a bit upset that my Earthling Prime Minister but I think that sounds like a great idea. So, I mean, let's hope that something comes of your other space idea because that sounds really fun. Yeah. Help, alien pirates stole my granddad. That's what it was called. If anyone <laughs> listening would like it. I think it's really funny, but then I'm biased. <laughs> well, I really hope we do see more of Harvey Small and the Swamp and all the giants at the school. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Chloe. It's been lovely. That was Hannah Moffat talking about her middle grade novel, Small, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Mom? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 